All right, so Pastor Rex is still gone this week, still on vacation. Uh, so again, still stuck with me. I guess if you don't know, if you're new or visiting, uh, my name is Landon Schaffner. I'm the youth and assistant pastor here at True North. Uh, so Pastor Rex Stump is our lead pastor, so he's normally the one who's up here. I'm up here about once a month, but I've been uh, the last two weeks while Rex and his family have been gone. Uh, so I believe they're coming home today. Um, I know you've prob- some of you have been praying for them, so I'm sure they had a good time. Um, and again, just continue to pray for him and for his family. Um, so we, if you've been with us, hopefully you know by now that we're still in Romans 8. We've been preaching a series through Romans 8 for about two months now, and we've just been going straight through. And so we're still in it, and we will be for probably a couple more weeks until we get to the end. So when Steve was up here doing announcements, he said, we're a Bible church. We believe in the Bible. We, we preach the Bible. Uh, and so, you're going to need your Bible. So go ahead and get those out. Now turn to Romans 8. If anybody doesn't have one, wants one, needs one, we have plenty in the back on the table. If you don't want to get up, Mike is back there in the yellow shirt, just eagerly awaiting to take a Bible to somebody. So, Bible's open, Romans 8. While you're turning there, in the New Testament, that's closer to the back. Even if you have to look in the index, perfectly fine too. Uh, but Romans 8. Uh, so... Before we get there, uh, if you remember, if you were here last week, I said that last week and this week is really just one sermon, but it's just split into two weeks. And so if you, you were here last week, I kind of left you hanging because I didn't really close. I didn't conclude the sermon. And I told you that it was going, just going to lead into this week. And so that's what it's going to do. This is just going to be a continuation of last week, more or less. Uh, but if you weren't here last week or haven't heard last week's sermon... No worries, you should have no trouble understanding this week. I will do some review, uh, but again, you should have no troubles uh, just picking up uh, in Romans 8, 28 through 30 this week. Uh, and so, the passage today, as I just mentioned, is Romans 28 through 30. Remember, we've been talking a lot about suffering and glory uh, in Romans 8 for the past three or four weeks. We're going to continue talking about it today, uh, but, but today we're going to take it a step further um, and today's really kind of the, the dagger, the nail in the coffin uh, for our hope, in, in a good way, that is. And so, but before we begin with today's passage, I just want to say a couple of things. And, and the first thing is this. Today's passage is, is a doozy. I, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's no joke. It's not light, fluffy stuff. Okay, there, there are some words in here. That might scare you. There are some concepts in here that are deep, that are beyond our ability to comprehend in their fullness. And so I just want to say, prepare yourself, brace yourself, because uh, it's not going to be a light and fluffy text, and it won't be a light and fluffy sermon. All right, so, and again, going into this, remember that when Paul is writing this, he's not trying to scare us. He's not trying to just write some profound, deep theological text. He's writing to a specific people, trying to comfort them right, with the, the hope that he's going to write about here. And, and so again, brace yourself. Understand that we're, we're going into the deep end today. All right, do you remember when you were a little kid and you would play in the kiddie pool? Remember how much fun that was? It was you know, just a couple feet deep, real shallow, and a lot of fun. It was awesome. Now, do you ever remember looking over at the deep end and thinking, 
I don't know about that. That looks like it's kind of deep, kind of mysterious. Like I can't really see the bottom. I don't know what's down there. It might be kind of dangerous. So I'm just going to stay away. All right, but when you got older, most of you at least probably ventured into the deep end at some point. Some of you might still be playing the kiddie pool. That's all right. Uh, but if you went into the deep end, I'm sure that you found that the deep end was pretty fun. And in fact, you probably found that there are greater joys to be found in the deep end than just in the kiddie pool. Kiddie pool is fun. That's great stuff. But the deep end, that's where the real joy is. And so today, this text is going to take us into the, the, the theological deep end, so to speak, and understand that there are greater joys to be found there. It might be scary. It might be mysterious. Stick with it. All right, but again, Paul has in mind our ultimate joy and God's ultimate glory. All right, and so there is greater joy to be found in the deep end. So Romans 8, 28 through 30, a text today. Before we get there, having said that kind of disclaimer, let's do a little bit of review. So Romans 8, 18 through 25, the Apostle Paul's writing. He's alternating back and forth between talking about our, our current suffering and our future glory. And so remember, I said it's like in that passage, he lit a flame of hope in us that we should have burning in the midst of all circumstances. All right, then remember verses 24 and 25, he says this, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. And so you remember last week I asked the question, if he tells us that we can't see this hope, how can we be so sure that we're going to attain it? What if we fail to reach that hope and and get to the point he's talking about? What if we fail to attain it? What if we fail to reach glory? And then I said in verses 26 through 30, he's essentially going to throw gasoline on the fire of our hope. And so that it goes from just this little flicker of hope to a burning fire that will burn up any doubt that stands in its path. And so in 26 and 27, he talks about uh, the Holy Spirit and how he helps us in our weakness when we don't know what to pray for as we are. And how he's interceding for us according to the will of God. And so this is kind of a review of last week's sermon. Uh, so... Essentially, what we said last week is that when we suffer and we're hurt and confused and we don't even know what to pray for as we ought, we don't need to fear that God doesn't hear us, that he has abandoned us or will abandon us, when we don't need to fear that he will answer a wrong prayer and so make the wrong thing happen for us. Okay, and we know this because the Holy Spirit is helping us by creating in us these deep and wordless groanings for the proper thing and the best thing for us. And that's for God to be glorified by him accomplishing his will in us. And we said that last week, went into verse 28, and said that God's will for us is our ultimate good, that he is working all things together for our good. And so the, the kind of the crux of last week's sermon was the Holy Spirit in our weakness is helping us to ensure, along with God the Father, that all things are working together for our good. And last week I ended the sermon with this, before I said to be continued. And the question was, verse 28 says, all things work together for our good, right? What is the good in verse 28? What does it mean that God works everything together for our good? How do we define that good? 
And if you remember last week, I said, the good that Paul lays out here is far better than anything we could dream of for ourselves. And so that's the question that we're going to seek to answer today. We know the Holy Spirit is working with God the Father to ensure that all things work together for our good. What's that mean, and what is that good? So, all that being said, let's go ahead and jump in now. This is finally, like, this week, that's our review. Let's go ahead and get started. So, 28 through 30, we'll start with just verse 28. It says this, Likewise, excuse me, that's verse 26. 28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And now, Romans 8, 28. One of those verses we love to quote. We love to put on coffee cups, put on t-shirts, write in songs, we say it all the time. We, we know that all things work together for our good. And that's a, for good reason. It's, a, it's one of the most encouraging and hopeful verses in all of Scripture, is it not? To know that God is working all things together for our good. And so we quote it for good reason. Right? Because it is encouraging. It is hopeful. But we often fail to look at the context of what comes after it and fail to define what that good is. And so I think there should be a rule that before you quote Romans 8.28, you should at least be able to explain how it relates to Romans 8.29. So we'll get there in a little bit. Uh, but all things work together for our good. That's the promise of it. Now let's break it down even more. It starts out by saying, and we know that for those who love God. So look at that phrase, for those who love God. So this is, this is not a way of saying, it's not a way of measuring how much you love God. He's not saying that if you're a Christian, but you're failing to actively love God enough in your daily life, then all things won't work together for your good. Right? So it's not a measure of God's love in us. Rather, it's a generic statement that is referring to all believers, all Christians. It's almost like a way of categorizing Christians apart from non-Christians. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that uh, Christians, believers, God's Adopted sons and daughters are the only ones that have a true and legitimate love for him. Where, as it says, unbelievers have a hostility towards God. They're enemies, children of wrath. And so when he says, for those who love God, again, it's just a way of categorizing believers. So us here today, for those who love God, that's us. Right? And where he says, for those who love God, that corresponds with the phrase at the end of verse 28 for those who are called according to his purpose. So those who love God are also those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this phrase, called according to his purpose, is a tough one. So the people who love God, who are believers, are the people who have been called according to his purpose, as I think what Paul is saying here. Now, the word called, look at the word called. It's used all throughout the New Testament, When the word called is used in the New Testament, it is almost always referring to a a calling to oneself, to God calling people to himself. So if you look at some of the beginning of Paul's uh, letters, he'll write uh, to all those in Rome called to be saints. So he's writing to those people who have been called to God, called to become believers in Christ. Another good example is in Galatians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. But Galatians 1, Paul is talking about his own 
testimony here, how he became a believer in Christ and then eventually became an apostle. And in Galatians 1, 15, he says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. All right, so what he says, him who set me apart before the world, right, called me by his grace. So we know that the call, being called, is according to or by God's grace. And what is that? So the call is, we know it's by God's grace. We also know that it is the revealing of God's Son to us. And so what Paul says there is that when Paul became a Christian, if you know his conversion story from Acts chapter 9, he was Saul, not a believer. Right? In fact, he was hostile towards God, riding his horse or his donkey on the way to Damascus. Jesus shows up, throws him off his horse, appears to him, and he, he really doesn't give Paul or Saul at that time the option. He says, Paul, you're, you're mine. Right? He called Paul to himself. Right? He, it was an effectual call. He called him to himself. And so when he says called, for those who are called according to his purpose in verse 28, I think he's using it in the same way where he says, those who love God, us who are called according to his purpose, who have been called to God, called to become believers and called to be his sons and daughters. And so those who love God are those who are called according to God's purpose. And for those people, verse 28 says, that chunk in the middle, he says, all things work together for good. And so the first point is this. Those, the the promise that all things work together for good, first and foremost, applies to those who love God, who are those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, we love to quote this verse, again, for good reason, But sometimes we'll apply this verse to people who don't know Christ. The promise in verse 28 is for people who know Christ. It applies to believers. And so let that be the first point where Steve was talking about now is the time. If you don't know Christ, if you are not a true believer in Jesus, have not trusted in him alone for your salvation, then you don't have the promise that all things work together for your good. Right? That doesn't apply to people who don't know Christ. And so if that's you today, you don't know Christ, the time is now. Right? Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus in faith. Right? In belief, knowing that when you do so, his grace right, will save you, will cover you. And then you can walk out of here today knowing that the promise of Romans 8, 28 applies to you. That from this point forward, all things in my life, good, bad, ugly, will work together for my good according to God's will. So that promise applies to believers. If we are already in Christ, the promise is ours today. All things work together for our good. But we still haven't defined what the good is. And to do that, we need to go to the next verse. Right, Romans eight twenty nine is where this good is defined. But again, we're going to break verse 29 down and do some work there. So verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
Right, so first part, those whom he foreknew. Right, that's one of those scary words I mentioned at the beginning. The word foreknew simply means to know ahead of time. For, ahead or before, know. Now, the thing with the word know is that I don't necessarily think it means to know about in this context. Does that make sense? There's a difference between knowing something and knowing somebody or someone intimately and knowing about them. So let me show you what I mean. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8.3 says this, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So I don't, I don't think he's saying that if anyone loves God, is a believer in Jesus, God knows about him. He doesn't know about the other people. He just knows about those people. I don't think how that... That's, I don't think that's how the word is being used there. I don't think that's how it's being used in Romans 8.29. Right? What it means instead, 1 Corinthians 8.3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He knows us intimately. God knows us. He knows his children perfectly, intimately. Right, another example, uh, John 10.14 and 15. Jesus is talking here. This is the passage where he, yeah, he talks about he's the, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, and the, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. It's that same passage. So he's talking about himself, and he's talking about God the Father, and he's talking about the sheep. And in John ten fourteen, Jesus says that he knows his sheep, and that his sheep know him. Right? Same word, know. In the very next verse, John ten fifteen, Jesus says that the Father knows him, and that he knows the Father. So does God the Father merely know about Jesus? Does he like just have an intellectual perception that Jesus exists? Like, oh yeah, it's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, yeah, I know that guy. No, he knows him. The Father and the Son know each other perfectly and intimately. And in the verse before that, Jesus used the same word to say that he knows his sheep, his people. And as people, his sheep know him. And so the word know, I think, in Romans 8, 29, is used in that same way, where it means know intimately, perfectly. If you read through the Old Testament, the word know is often used to describe the relationship between a husband and wife and the sexual union between them. It says that Adam knew his wife Eve. <laughs> it's not saying that he knew about her. He didn't just come up and meet her and, you know, get to know her. He, he got to know her. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> He, he knew her. They knew each other. And so that's how the word know is used often in Scripture. Right? Know. And so God knows his people. And so in Romans eight twenty nine it says, For those whom he foreknew. I think not saying that God looked in the future and knew, just knew about us, but rather that he knew us intimately, perfectly. Right? And so, I mean, take comfort in that today. If you're in here and you are a believer, God foreknew you. He knew you perfectly, intimately. He knows you now intimately and perfectly. Not merely about you. He doesn't just know your name. He knows you. Right? So that's those whom he foreknew. Now, whom did God foreknow? Who did God know intimately from eternity past? It's his people who are called according to his purpose from verse 28. 
He also goes on to say in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, there's another scary word, predestined. Like, it simply means to de- determine beforehand, right? To make happen. And so what he's saying is that people whom God knew intimately in eternity past, he also predestined or determined that they would become like Christ. So Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Right, same word used in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. It says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Right, those two verses are very similar to Romans 28 through 30 and a lot of what he says right there. And so I think what he's saying in verse 29 and there in Ephesians 1 is that God foreknew his people, knew them intimately, and he determined before the foundation of the world that they would become his adopted sons and daughters and that they would ultimately be conformed to the image of Christ. So his adopted sons and daughters who are nothing like him, who have rejected him, are children of wrath, rebels, haters of God, hostile towards him, he is going to make his children, adopt them into his family, but he won't stop there. He's going to make them like his one true son. Right, this is what Romans eight twenty nine says. Now let's ask the, the question then, what does it mean to become like the one true son or to be conformed to the image of Christ? And I think it has two aspects. And the first is that there's a present aspect in the here and now where we become more like him in our daily lives. And so now for us who are in Christ, who are saved, God is now working all things together to conform us to the image of Christ so that in our daily lives, we are walking more like him, we're acting more like him, thinking more like him, our affections are those of Christ, that we are gradually being conformed into the image of Christ that we will look like him, live like him, think like him, be like him. Now, that's the first aspect, a present aspect. That's happening right now as we speak. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. We're becoming like him. The second aspect, I think, is a future and eternal aspect. Whereby we are conformed to Christ in his glory. In fact, I think this is Paul's primary focus in Romans 8. Right? Not when he talks about that future hope of glory and the glory that's to be revealed to us, he's talking about finally being fully conformed to the image of Christ. Right? That's what our hope of glory is, being conformed to his image. And so his point in this whole passage and in verse 29 is that God has determined before the foundation of the world that we, his people, who he would adopt into his family, would one day share in Christ's glory. That we would be given a glorified resurrection body just as Jesus was. And that we would one day be partakers of his glory with him in his kingdom. God's purpose for us from before the foundation of the world was that we would be adopted into his family 
and made to be like his one true son to the praise of his glory. This is the good that Romans 8.28 is talking about. And even going back to verses 26 and 27, this is what makes verses 26 and 27 so astoundingly good. The Holy Spirit helps us in our suffering by interceding for us according to the will of God. The will of God is that we should be conformed to the image of Christ to the praise of his glory. And so the Holy Spirit, going back to verses 26 and 27, intercedes for us to this end. Or he prays for this to happen in our lives. In our suffering. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know what the best thing is for us. In those times, we take heart. The Holy Spirit is creating these deep and wordless groanings inside of us for us to ultimately be conformed to the image of Christ. And so when we don't know what to pray for, we can trust that God has not abandoned us. He will not abandon us. He hears us, and he is working in unison with his Spirit for our ultimate good, to be conformed to the image of Christ. So that's the good of Romans 8.28. It's not that when bad things happen, God will always just turn them into good things. He might. He often does. He often doesn't, though. The promise is much bigger than that. It's much better. I remember in college when one of my professors in a class pointed this out to us. He was talking about Romans 8, 28 and 29. Talked about 28, and he asked the same question. What is the good in verse 28? And I'd always thought about this because I don't, I don't know what that good is. And I, I always thought about it that God would just turn my bad things into good things. That somehow, when bad things happen, I don't know what's going on or what's going to happen, but somehow, some way, God will bring something good out of it. Like maybe I got, okay, I applied to this college, got rejected, but maybe I'll get accepted to the, the right one, the better one. Which, that's not out of the question. He might do that. He often does. But he might not. And so I learned the actual meaning of that verse, that the good is that I be conformed to the image of Christ. And it wasn't long after that that I started to endure an extremely difficult time. And it lasted for months. And it was during those months that I would pray for deliverance. Just, God, give me relief from this just burden that I have. So I prayed and I prayed And it didn't come. But it wasn't, like I said, long before that, that I had been shown the promise of Romans 8.28 and the good that is Romans 8.29. And so even during that time, I think what really kept me going and kept me from going more insane than I, I was, was knowing that things stink right now. I hate this, what I'm going through. But I do know that God is working this together for my good to conform me to the image of Christ. And I could see that in my daily life. In my daily life, I was growing in my Christ-likeness. He was using this bit of suffering to expose sin in my life, to expose pride and sin and selfishness. Chisel those away and make me more like Christ. Not only that, I also knew that this was working for my ultimate glorification with Christ one day. 
Yeah, and, and so the promise is for any of us who are in Christ, right? Not necessarily that God will turn our bad things into good things. He might. If so, awesome. We praise God for that. But if and when he doesn't, will we still praise God, knowing that he is still working all things together for our good? That he is using our suffering and our pain and our affliction to chisel away at us to make us into the image of Christ. Alex and I were hosting the college age Bible study at our house this past Thursday night. And we were talking about just the the topic of suffering, and we, we talked about it from this whole passage. And we gave the analogy of uh, God chiseling away at us. Like, if Christ is the, the model here, and we're just this block of stone or marble, and God is just chiseling away at us to make us like Jesus, the model. And so we, we talked about how, you know, the good times, yes, God is conforming us to the image of Christ in those, but really it's the times of suffering when that's happened, when God is chiseling away at us, just breaking off huge chunks of marble and stone, right? Making us like Christ. And so this is our promise for us who are in Christ. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. For he has foreknown us and predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right, so God, in his sovereign oversight of the universe, nothing escapes his sovereign oversight of the universe. The, the world isn't spinning out of control. God isn't sitting in heaven, fretting over what he's going to do, trying to figure out, uh, yeah, what am I going to do? How, how am I going to work all things together for their good? No, in his perfect wisdom and power and glory, he is sovereign overall, working all things together for our good, making all things, good and bad, servants of our ultimate joy and his ultimate glory. So that when anything happens, good or bad or ugly, God has not lost control. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he, in his sovereign power, is making all circumstances, all things, slaves to us for our ultimate joy and glory, in his glory. Right. This is the promise of Romans 8, 28. This is the good. Not that God works all, he'll make our bad things into good things, but that he will work everything together to conform us into the image of his son. Now, we could stop here and call it a day, uh, but we have one more verse to go. And in verses 28 and 29, Paul should have just erased any doubts we had about the hope that we don't see. So if we had any doubt that I don't see this hope, how do I know I'm going to attain it? Paul should have just erased doubt here. But if he didn't, verse 30 is like the dagger. I mean, it's the nail in the coffin. I mean, it should seal the deal for our hope. So if we have any doubt left about our ability or our to persevere and attain the hope that he's talking about, verse 30 should destroy that and wipe it out. In verse 30, he says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this, this verse gives us the bird's eye view of salvation, so to speak. 
So it presents to us the, the divine aspect of our salvation, the divine viewpoint over all of our salvation. And when, and when Paul gives us this divine viewpoint in our salvation, he gives to us what many theologians call a golden chain of salvation. Uh, so verse 30 gives to us a golden chain of salvation. And they call it a golden chain because it presents to us an unbreakable chain of salvation that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. Each chain, right, a link in it that's unbreakable. Uh, And the links are this, going back to verse 29, those whom he foreknew. It says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Right, this is the first chain in the link, and this is eternally past here. In eternally past, God foreknowing us, determining that we should be conformed to the image of his son, right, before the foundation of the world. Right, first chain. Eternally past, foreknow, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. First chain. He goes from there in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Now, called, the same word that he used in verse 28 when he said, uh, called according to his purpose. So, foreknown, predestined, called. Those whom he foreknew eternally past, he called. Or the NLT, if you read in one of these red Bibles, the New Living Translation, says it well, and it says, he called to come to himself. So those whom he foreknew, he called to himself. We're believers because God has called us to himself. And then he goes on, those whom he called, he also justified. Right? If you read in the New Living Translation, it says, made right with himself. If you remember that word justified or justification, to be declared righteous before God, to be made right with him, not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of Christ's perfect work. And so it goes, the chain, foreknew, predestined, called, justified. And then the last one, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified is the final link in the chain of salvation. It's the the consummation of, of our salvation. And when he says glorified in verse 30, this is the glory that he's talking about all through Romans 8. So in verse 17, when he says, we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him, same glory as he's talking about in verse 30. Verse 18, when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Same glory as verse 30. Verses 21 and 23, he talks about our coming glory again. Same glory as verse 30. Right? To be glorified is the same thing as to be fully conformed to the image of Christ. And so verse 29, we are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. It will happen. And then verse 30, he says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we will be glorified. We will ultimately be conformed to the image of Christ. We will attain the eternal weight of glory that Rex talked about a couple weeks ago. We will be glorified with Christ. We will share in his resurrection. We will share in his glorification. We'll be made like him finally, freed from sin, freed from sinful actions and thoughts and sinful motives free from pride and selfishness and hate and lust and murder and greed. 
Right? We will be made like Christ fully, not only morally in how we live and how we behave and act, but in our glory. We will have glorified physical bodies just as Jesus was resurrected with. Right? That is the good news of the gospel. Right? That those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I want to point out one more thing about the word glorified. If you read in the New Living Translation, it translates that as he also promised his glory. If you're reading, I'm reading out of another translation, it says he also glorified. Right? I feel like this translation does it better justice because it's more consistent with the surrounding context. But notice the word glorified. Right? What tense is that in? For a little grammar lesson here, English. Right, past tense. He doesn't say, and those whom he justified, he will also glorify. That would be a really natural way of continuing to say it, wouldn't it? Because our glorification hasn't happened yet, has it? I'm not glorified yet. My body's still going to break down. There's still sin residing in me. I'm not glorified yet. None of us are. None of us will be until the final resurrection day. So how does he talk about glorification in the past tense here? Why does he say those whom he justified, he also glorified? And I think it's because of this. Right? In the mind of God and in the plan of God, our glorification is complete. He, he considers it a finished act. So we have not been glorified yet, but we will be because in the plan of God, we have been glorified. We will be glorified. And this is where we can't comprehend God's eternality, his, he, how he's infinite, he's sovereign overall. Right? He, is, he exists outside of time. We can't comprehend this. But again, Paul writes this to comfort us. Right, that in the midst of our suffering, he doesn't tell his readers, look, you, he, you know, he justified you and he might glorify you. If you're lucky, you might get there. He says, no, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul tries to reassure his readers and give them hope by telling them about the sovereignty of God and that God in his sovereignty is also unconditionally for them. Right, we see that in the golden chain of salvation from foreknew to predestined to called to justified to glorified. Unbreakable chain. Unbreakable because it's God Himself who enacts it. Nothing can break it. Right? For those whom he foreknew, he's also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. If we are truly in Christ, we will be glorified one day. We don't see that hope. We wait for it with patience, though, because we know it's a sure thing. We have that assurance as believers. And so in here today, if you're a believer, take that assurance. Have you ever questioned, can you lose your salvation? Some, there are different viewpoints on that. I read this and I think, no way. Will I persevere to the end? What if I turn away from my faith in Christ? 
Well, if you were truly in Christ, those whom he justified, he also glorified. We cannot lose our salvation. We will not lose our salvation. And so if you're in here today struggling with doubt, like, man, I'm I'm, I'm a Christian. I have believed. I've been saved. I've been justified. Uh, I'm trying to attend church and spend time with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm praying. I'm reading God's word. I feel nothing, though. I'm, I'm stuck in this sin. I don't know why. Well, what if I'm not a Christian anymore? What if I lost my salvation? I think this passage lays that to rest. If you are truly in Christ, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. That means that that sin you're struggling with now that's causing all that doubt in you, that will be uprooted, that will be done away with progressively here in this life, and then once and for all when we share in Christ's glory. We will share in Christ's glory because in the mind of God, it's done. It's been finished. And so take that assurance today, brothers and sisters in Christ. We will not fall away. We will persevere to the end, even in the face of suffering, because it is God who will be carrying us along to do so. Is completed, he will ensure that we get there. All right, and the second thing we can apply this is this. In the face of suffering, this is the firmest of foundations for our hope. Right, to know that in, even in our suffering, God in his sovereign power and sovereign oversight of the universe is making that suffering a slave to our ultimate joy and his ultimate glory. Right, that's a stronger promise than saying Romans 8.28, well, my bad things might become good things. Well, they might not. All things will, though, work for our conformity to the image of Christ, they all will work for our glorification. And so this promise in Romans 8 should give us the ability to hold fast and stand firm in any suffering. I don't care what it is. Right? Cancer, health problems, death, life, uh, depression, anxiety. Right? We can stand firm Knowing these promises. God in his sovereignty is making these things slaves to my ultimate joy and his ultimate glory. Stinks now, but it is working to conform us to the image of Christ. And one day we will be glorified with Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as we close. Uh, I guess I'll close with this. I always hear... Along with this Romans 8, 20, I often hear Jeremiah 29, 13 quoted. For I know the plans I have for you, uh, not plans to harm you, but plans to prosper you, or something to that effect. We all know it. It's another coffee cup verse we put on wristbands and T-shirts and coffee cups and everything. Now, for, I won't get into how we take that verse out of context, but... I think it's true for us as believers. God will ensure that his people, uh, believers, us, will prosper, that he doesn't mean to harm us. I think that's true. But what if his way of prospering us is for us to be, go be a missionary in the Middle East, be persecuted, be beheaded? 
What if that's God's plan for us? Now, we should cringe at that and mourn over that, but at the same time, knowing that even as that happens, that is serving God's purpose. We should be able to say from these promises with the Apostle Paul, as he says in Philippians 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I know whether I live in whatever state or condition or circumstance that might be, to live is Christ. I am being conformed to the image of Christ. I'm learning to treasure him more. My affections are lining up with him. I'm being made more like him. And if I die, so be it, because then I get Christ. I'll be glorified with him. That is gain. And so when we root ourselves in the promises of Romans 28, we can say that. To live is Christ. To die is gain. We can count our lives as nothing. We can lose our lives for the sake of Christ, knowing that he is working all things together for our good. And that serving Christ, preaching Christ, may lead to persecution. It may lead to our death, maybe even in a violent and gruesome way. But that is leading us to glory. And so if that's the path that we walk, so be it. Because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus died to ensure Romans 8, 28 through 30. He died to ensure that we would be called and justified and glorified, that we would be conformed to his image. Christ purchased that at the cross for us. So again, if we're in Christ here today, take heart knowing that Jesus has purchased it for us. We'll get there. It's completed. We will persevere. All things are servants of our joy and his glory. And I go back to, if you're not in Christ in here today, if you're not, you don't call yourself a Christian, you've never believed in Jesus, trusted in him for your salvation, the time is now. Right? Jesus died to make this happen for you. Turn to Christ in faith. Turn, be justified, knowing that when you're justified, you will be glorified. And that the promise of Romans 8.28 is now yours in Christ. And so as we sing here, let's just offer up our ardent worship and praise to our sovereign, powerful God who is working all things together for our good. So will you stand and pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we come to you as your people, not understanding how, but knowing that you have known us from eternity past and that you've determined that we should be conformed to the image of your Son and share in his glory. God, we come to you knowing that we have no right to come to you now, that we have no ability to come to you except by the blood of Christ. And so we come to you by his blood and in his name, knowing that he has made it possible for us to draw near to you, knowing that he has purchased our salvation for us. Father, we thank you that you've called us to yourself, that you've called us so that each of us have turned in faith to Jesus and been saved. And Father, I pray for anybody right now who is not yet 
save. And Lord, may you save them today. Lord, call them to yourself. May your Holy Spirit draw them, open their eyes to see your glory. God, may they turn, repent of their sin, believe in Christ in faith, that they might sing of your glory now and forever. Father, we thank you for saving us, and we long for the day when we will finally see the glory that's to be revealed to us. Lord, right now I pray that you would help us to take heart in our suffering, help us to suffer well, and help us to know that you are working all things together for our good. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.